You know, it's dangerous to stare into a rearview mirror while you're driving down the highway. You need to keep your eyes on the road ahead, but a quick peek now and then is helpful. A rearview mirror provides a needed perspective. And this is how I live my life. The goal is to press forward, to keep on keeping on. Don't live in the past. But you know, only a fool neglects the lessons he's learned. A quick peek in the rearview mirror reminds us of where we came from and what's important to us. We're sure of where we're going when we can see where we've been. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to take a peek or two in my spiritual rearview mirror. I want to glance back at some of the lessons I've learned. I think they'll provide us a clearer picture of what really matters. Here's the game plan over the next few weeks. For the next two Sundays, we'll talk about grace. Then we're going to spend four Sundays on the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we're going to share a few thoughts on the importance of God's Word. This morning, though, our text is John chapter 1, verse 17. We're going to read a single verse, and we're going to peek in the rearview mirror at the wonders of God's grace. John chapter 1, verse 17 tells us, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In 2001, country music favorite Alan Jackson released a song entitled, Where I Come From. It's a catchy tune, but it has a dangerous lyric. In fact, hear a soundbite and see if you can pick out the troublesome line. Here we go. Because where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, a lot of front porch picking. Where I come from. Trying to make a living and working hard to get to heaven where I come from. Okay, okay. Like Alan Jackson, I also like cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, there's a lot of front porch sitting, even some guitar picking. And we're certainly trying to make a living. But what bothers me about that song is the line that Alan sings, and working hard to get to heaven where I come from. Ironically, that's the very attitude that's sending a lot of people to hell. And sadly, where I come from, that's a common belief. If not in theory, then certainly in practice. You see, there's a lot of church-going, Bible-believing Southern folk who are working hard to get to heaven, and they're misled. You see, Alan Jackson's song, Where I Come From, is an apt description of Southern living. Fried food and good music and church on Sundays and hard work. Southerners are known for all of the above, especially a rigorous work ethic. But here's the tragedy. We tend to apply our toil and sweat mentality to our Christianity, and we miss out on something very important. Where I come from, people are working hard to get to heaven. There's only one problem. That's not how the Bible says we get there. Somebody needs to tell Alan Jackson that heaven ain't for workers, it's for believers. Faith and grace, not elbow grease, is God's ticket to heaven. One Christmas, Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, we conducted an outreach. On the weekend before the big day, we set up a tent in the parking lot at the Kmart in Snellville, and we offered free gift wrapping. 
Along with the wrapping, we gave a booklet with a Christian message and a cup of hot coffee. But it was all very low-key. The effort was just a, a way of us simply passing out a kindness in Jesus' name. So many southern folks have the idea that churches are only out for their money. You know, we wanted to change that per- perception by doing something for people with no strings attached. Our intention was to display God's grace. And over that weekend, we wrapped like 2,000 Christmas presents for maybe 1,000 different people. But I was shocked at the reactions we got from most of the shoppers. Even though our sign read, free gift wrapping, the question we heard most often was, how much does this cost? Folks would grumble, come on, nothing is ever free. There's got to be a catch. What do I have to do? And probably half of the people that got their gifts wrapped, when they were done, they wanted to pay us. It was so fun to turn down their money and tell them that there was nothing they could do to purchase the gift that we had given them. You know, I found that if you want to surprise a neighbor, extend some grace. Show an unexpected kindness. Do a favor that can't be earned or returned. Bestow a blessing with no strings attached. To a southerner, a thoughtful act that can't be repaid is about as foreign as a church that doesn't pass an offering plate. One look at our neighborhood, and it dawns on me that Moses has set up shop on every corner. You don't have to go far to find a church that emphasizes law and trumpets rules and stresses the do's and don'ts. Sadly, the law gets preached every Sunday in southern cities. But where is the place where folks can find grace? I believe God wants us to be a grace place. I'm sure God has many purposes for our church and our community, but none is more crucial than for us to be a dispenser of God's grace. You know, as Christians, we usually think of Moses and Jesus as allies. After all, they're both in the Bible. They're both held in a positive light. They both delivered their people. We assume that they're on the same team. And in a sense, they are. But in our text, notice John presents them in juxtaposition. Rather than side by side, he puts them at odds, on opposite ends. Yes, Moses and Jesus serve the same God, occupy the same heaven, have the same ambition for their people, to love God and to love each other. But what separates them is how they accomplish their goals. Again, our text says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Understand, the law of Moses served many purposes. It illustrated what love looks like, both love for God and love for others. Its requirements revealed God's holiness and His righteousness. Its rituals showed our need for sacrifice. Its lofty standards exposed our sin and shortcomings, and it proved that none of us can live up to God's expectations in our own strength. You know, there's an ancient legend that says that when God gave the tablets of the law to Moses, he sounded like a doctor. He ordered him, Now Moses, take these two tablets, and if you're not feeling better in a week, come back to see me. And that's what happened. The law exposed man's sin, but it couldn't fix the sinner. Man had to return to God over and over to atone for his sin. Yes, the law was beneficial in many ways, 
But in the end, it only brought condemnation. Galatians 2 verse 16 tells us, For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Hebrews 7 verse 19 adds, For the law made nothing perfect. You see, the law makes demands, but it doesn't empower me to fulfill those demands. The law lays out the rules, but it can't rule my unruly heart. The law raises the bar on my behavior, but without putting any spring in my legs. The law concluded me an incurable sinner, unworthy, with no right to expect God's blessing. And boy, is it ever right. Tell Moses I said it. The law did some good, but it leaves us condemned. No one on earth can live up to the law that Moses laid down. During a conference of British clergy, a group of theologians were discussing what, if any, religious belief was unique to Christianity. In the group, they were struggling for answers. One man suggested the incarnation, but it was noted that several different religions had stories of the gods appearing in human form. Another man mentioned the resurrection, but examples were given of other religions where people had allegedly returned from the dead. The conversation turned into quite a heated debate, but that's when C.S. Lewis strolled into the room. He asked what all the ruckus was about. One of the theologians told him, that they were discussing the unique contribution that Christianity had made to the world. Lewis, in a rather matter-of-fact tone, he responded, Oh, that's easy. It's grace. And indeed it is. Christianity is all about grace and truth. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes, The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. See, here's one of the reasons I'm convinced that the Bible and the Christian gospel truly come from God. For never in a zillion years would a works-oriented, performance-prone man come up with the concept of grace. Author Max Licato, he says it best. He says, I've never been surprised by God's judgment, but I'm still stunned by His grace. I couldn't agree more. On a recent flight to California, I got upgraded to first class, and I thought, man, what a blessing. But it was really a mission. For the fellow beside me, he had questions about Christianity and how it differed from other religions. I explained to him that there were really only two religions in the world. Christianity is full of grace. In Jesus, God's hand is voluntarily reaching down to lift up people who can't pull themselves up on their own. Whereas all other religions are about man's efforts to elevate himself. Everybody has a different idea of how to do it. But the premise is still the same. And the premise is wrong. God is holy. His favor can never be prompted by us. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing that we've done that can merit God's acceptance. Yet here is grace. And here's why we call it amazing. God chooses to treat us as if we had actually earned His blessing. He looks at what Jesus did on the cross and he credits it to your account. We receive his righteousness. 
John's previous verse, verse 16 says, And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. Literally, grace upon grace. Jesus brings us grace compounded daily. His grace is grace stacked on top of grace. Through Jesus, God has given us an inexhaustible supply of grace. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, even where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. In other words, the darker the canvas, the brighter the light. God never backs down when challenged by our sin. No matter the depth of our sin or the stink of our sin or the longevity of our sin, grace always steps up to the plate. Grace always comes through in the clutch. It forgives us of our sin and it earns God's favor for the sinner. You know, my wife and I, we were engaged for a whopping two months before we got married. Two months. In regards to romance, I've heard it said, don't underestimate the power of love at first sight. Most of us wouldn't pass a second inspection. Well, this was certainly my rationale. I figured the more time Kathy had to get to know me, the less likely she was to go through with it. So I just tried to speed up the process. But here's the deal with God's grace. God knows me. He is aware of all my wicked ways. Even more thoroughly than I am. And yet His grace doesn't even balk. His grace doesn't even flinch. Even though I sin because of the work of Jesus, He still treats me as if I don't. Yes, God is holy and I am not. Yes, I've sinned miserably and fallen short of God's glory. Yes, even my best efforts are as filthy rags. Jesus never denies these truths. Rather, He reveals a far greater truth. And that is that the love of God can overcome my sin. Did you hear that? The love of God can overcome your sin. Grace is that powerful. That's why I maintain and obtain a right standing with God by grace and faith alone. When Jesus came into the world, He brought grace and truth. Here's a beautiful definition. Grace. It's love that's on the house. It's not fair, it's free. It's not earned, it's given. It's not expected, it's a surprise. Hey, under Moses, people knew where they stood. Moses meted out fairness and justice. Moses never graded on the curve. You got what you deserve. With Moses, religion held no surprises. It was southern-style religion. But when Jesus carried the cross up that hill called Calvary, an earth-shattering surprise was in the making. For God was doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. He was paying the price. He was unlocking the prison. In the person of Jesus, the holiness of God was satisfied. In the sacrifice of Jesus, the justice of God was pacified. In the resurrection of Jesus, the acceptance of God was ratified. In the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the power of God was realized. And through it all, the love of God gets amplified. Grace walked up that hill and shocked the world forever. Rather than ask mankind to do something, to perform a penance or to make an atonement or to earn some absolution, God did something. 
Paul explains it in Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, still bucking and blinded and in bondage, God loved us enough to take the initiative and in Christ die in our place. Rather than require us to clean up, God takes us while we were yet sinners. By grace, He accepts us just where we're at, just as we are. It reminds me of a young lady who lived in Boston. She was from a poor family, and for a time she even lived in a homeless shelter. Yet through hard work and a successful business, she had pulled herself out of poverty. She met a man, and they decided to marry. In preparation for the wedding reception, she contracted the downtown Hyatt. She ordered a meal with all the trimmings, expensive centerpieces, formal waiters, an orchestra for entertainment. The price tag came to a whopping $13,000. But here's where the plot thickens. For a few days prior to the wedding, the groom got cold feet. He was afraid of such a big commitment. After an awkward conversation, he backed out. And immediately, the surprised bride, she went to the Hyatt Hotel for a refund, but to no avail. She had signed a contract. The jilted bride had only two options. She could cancel the reception and forfeit 90% of the $13,000 she'd spent, or she could go through with the party. Though at first it seemed crazy... The more the abandoned bride thought about it, the more she liked the notion of continuing with the party. Here's what the young lady did. First, she changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. Then she sent out invitations to the homeless shelters and the rescue missions. That night, Hyatt waiters dressed in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to bag ladies and panhandlers. People who normally ate half-gnawed pizza feasted on chicken cordon bleu. Vagrants sipped champagne. Street people ate chocolate wedding cake while dancing to big band melodies. And in a spiritual sense, this is the perfect picture of Christianity. For you and I, we're the down-and-outers. We're the spiritual vagrants. But we're now dining on the king's finest. We're feasting on blessings we could never earn or deserve. We've been invited to live our lives at the banquet table of grace. Again, verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Oh, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the law, God revealed his justice and righteousness. But in Jesus, he revealed a love too costly to be earned. Moses says, don't cross that line. Jesus says, I'll bear the cross for you. Moses says, let's go toe to toe. Jesus says, why don't we walk arm in arm? Moses says, you better not. Jesus says, trust me and I'll make you better. Moses gives us what we deserve. Hey, Jesus serves up blessings we could never deserve. If you want justice, see Moses. But if you need mercy... You need to put a call into Jesus. Here's the big question this morning. As you look in the rearview mirror of your life, as you evaluate the grace you've known, the grace you've been shown, let me ask you, are you now a disciple of Moses? Or are you 
a disciple of Jesus. I mean, do you follow in Moses' footsteps, laying down the law, going toe-to-toe with sinners, calling down judgment on the rebels? Or do you follow in the steps of Jesus, surprising sinners with grace, loving even the unlovable? Hey, let me assure you, I like Moses. I like the guy. Man, I've seen the Ten Commandments countless times. I'll bet the real Moses is even more handsome than Charlton Heston. Tell him I said that. I even saw the animated version, Prince of Egypt. I've seen it all. Hey, I respect Moses. I'm sure he's a great guy. But I'm not a follower of Moses. I am a follower of Jesus. I like Moses, but I follow Jesus. I love and worship and serve the grace giver. Jesus is my Lord, not Moses. And that's why I want to be like Jesus. Moses laid down the law, but Jesus pours out grace and truth. And we will too, if we're truly his disciples. (coughs) But here's where it gets a little dicey. (coughs) For when I look in the rearview mirror of my life, I see people and pastors and churches who have called themselves Christian, but who in practice are followers of Moses. Just as I liked Moses but followed Jesus, they like Jesus, but they really follow Moses. Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe, he's traveled extensively among churches across North America, and he makes the following observation. He says, there are gospel-preaching churches that have legalistic tendencies and keep their members immature, guilty, and afraid. They spend a great deal of time dealing with the externals. They exalt standards, and they denounce sin. But they fail to magnify the Lord Jesus. Sad to say, in some New Testament churches, we have an Old Testament ministry. Boy, I pray that's never said of this church or any Calvary Chapel. That they call themselves a New Testament church, but they have an Old Testament emphasis in ministry. You know, there's a Latin phrase that we've carried over into our English. Modus operandi. Ever heard the term? It means mode or method of operation. We often talk about a person's M.O. Here's what I'm saying this morning. There are folks who call themselves Christian, and I'm sure they are. They're sincerely trusting Jesus. They agree with the necessary doctrines. They want to please God and build up His kingdom. Some of them have even heard the call of God and enrolled in ministry. But their M.O. is still M.O.S.S. Law is their M.O. They operate like Moses, not Jesus. They treat themselves and others as if they were under the law. Their life and ministry are characterized by words like do and work and try and push and go and sacrifice. But Jesus used words like rest and trust and yoke and come and serve, and give. Hey, what's your M.O.? Are you Moses motivated, or are you full of grace and truth? Do you walk around laying down the law, always making demands, drawing lines in the sand? Are you quick to bring judgment? Are you a Jack Bauer Christian, take no prisoners, shoot first, and ask questions later? Or is grace your M.O.? Grace is how you function. 
It's what you're all about. Grace is standing operating procedure for how you treat people. During the 1990s, Christian leader Tony Campalo, he served as an advisor to President Bill Clinton. And when the Fuhrer erupted over the Monica Lewinsky scandal, Campalo's critics thought his friendship with Clinton legitimized the president's position. Campolo received more than a few angry letters. In fact, one pastor wrote him, Don't you understand that Bill Clinton doesn't deserve grace? Well, of course he doesn't. Grace is love you don't deserve. I'll bet that letter was written by a southern pastor. It's amazing to me how church folks can sign on to grace at a doctrinal level, but then when it comes to dealing with people, especially people we don't like, it's a bit more difficult to be full of grace. We tend to resemble Moses. You see, Moses drew lines in the sand. He dealt with sin decisively. He called for the ground to open up and swallow all of the rebels. But it was said of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax, he will not quench. Moses insisted on annual sacrifices and forced worship and detailed cleansings and tireless sacrifices and adherence to the rules. While Jesus offered, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, Moses was tough on crime. He never flinched at meeting out justice. But when they caught the adulteress in the very act and threw her down at Jesus' feet, he told her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Moses carried a big stick and was quick to use it on his enemies. Whereas Jesus, in his agony, said to his enemies, even those that were nailing him to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What about you? You believe in God's grace. But do you treat people with that same grace? In fact, have you applied grace to your own life? When you run across a person who's a bruised reed, do you brush him aside or yank him up? Or do you come alongside him to support him until he mends? When you find a person who resembles a few smoking embers, flickering a flickering fire, do you judge and snuff out and build a fire elsewhere? Or do you patiently take the time to fan that flame back to life? You see, grace builds bridges. It rekindles. Let me ask you, has your own Christianity become a religious treadmill? Do you feel the pounding and pounding of never being able to do enough? You need to stop your own efforts. And you need to breathe in God's grace. Jesus offers us rest and peace. You see, God promises us God's righteousness. So why in the world are we working so hard to develop a self-righteousness? Grace will always spawn cheerful givers. Grace will cause us to rediscover the joy of giving and serving. How often do you pick up stones to condemn another? Or are you the guy who stops the stoning? A lot of Christians spend so much time fighting sin, they have very little time left to love the sinner. Remember, sinners feared Moses, but they flocked to Jesus. He was known as a friend of sinners. Please don't think I'm suggesting that we ever go soft on sin, that we ever water down the demands for holy living. 
All I'm asking is that we recall who it is we serve. Moses is not our master. Grace should always be our MO. Our leader laid down his life for sinners. Jesus is a God of grace. Donald Gray Barnhouse claimed he could discern a pastor's readiness for ministry by hearing him read one line of Scripture, just three words. The candidate seeking his approval would read Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, and Barnhouse would pay close attention to the reading of the line in verse 6, where God comes looking for Adam and calls out, Where are you? If the aspiring pastor read it gruffly, Where are you, Adam? Barnhouse would conclude that the man didn't really know God's heart. But if he read it tenderly and with love, Where are you? He was sure that man knew of God's grace. Do we speak God's hope and grace into the lives of other people? When I look in the rearview mirror and see where I come from, and the sermons I heard growing up, I see angry pastors. They talked a lot about hell and eternal damnation. And that's true. There is a hell. But they talked about it as if they were excited I was headed there. Some Sundays I left church with the smell of soot on my clothes. You know, today when I preach, I first take a quick peek in the rearview mirror. Rather than beat sheep, man, I want to feed sheep. Rather than whip, I try to equip. Instead of bringing down the hammer, I want to bring down the grace. Since becoming a pastor, the nicest compliment I've ever received came one Sunday. After the sermon, this lady came up and she said, Pastor Sandy, I always hear a smile in your voice. I hope all my sermons are permeated with grace. Whose disciple are you? Who do you really represent? To your wife, to your kids, to your co-workers? Moses or Jesus? When people speak of you, do they use phrases like holier than thou, pushy, perfectionist, judgmental? They could just as easily say Moses. Or do people, even undeserving people, See in you grace and truth. Hey, the first plague Moses brought on Egypt was to turn water into blood. The miracle spoke of judgment and death. But the first miracle our Savior worked in Galilee turned water into wine. His miracle spoke of joy and life. On the day Moses brought the tablets of the law down from Mount Sinai, 3,000 people died in a plague. On the day the Holy Spirit poured out grace on the church, 3,000 people heard the gospel and were saved. The Old Testament ends with the word curse, and the New Testament ends with the phrase, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. You see, it's all about grace. Years ago, a concert took place in Wembley Stadium. It was a tribute to the end of apartheid in South Africa. The headliner that night was Guns N' Roses, and for hours they hyped up 70,000 drugged and drunk Londoners. And yet at evening's end, the promoters, they closed the concert in a unique way. They brought onto stage an opera singer, a black African named Jesse Norman. No band, no backup singers, no soundtrack, just Jesse. At first, the crowd began to boo and hiss. They called for more guns and roses. That is until Jesse began to sing. Amazing grace, 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And instantly, a mysterious power began to roll over the stadium. The once rowdy crowd unexpectedly settled down. By verse 2, she had the former revelers in the palm of her hand. By the third stanza, thousands of people had dug deep into their memories and were singing the lyrics of Amazing Grace along with Jesse. Later, the opera singer confessed she had no idea what had happened that night in Wembley Stadium. But I know what happened. Grace came. And when grace comes, it strikes a chord in the human heart. It sobers us. It stirs up an inner longing. Grace points us to its source, to Jesus. You see, the rowdy crowd in London that night is a microcosm of today's world. Empty people, lost in a frenzy, grabbing for the world's pleasures until grace comes. And they hear again that God cares and that He loves them and that He's dying to prove it. Grace brings the hope and healing for which we all seek. See, it does what the law could never do. It changes us. It fills our inner emptiness. I'm saying grace is the greatest power on this planet. Where I come from, we need it. A lot of it. We need to receive and then dispense God's glorious grace. So, whose disciple are you today? Is your M.O. grunt or grace? Do you follow Moses or Jesus? I pray that we all will emit the sweet aroma of God's grace. Father, we thank you for your word today, for your love for us. We thank you for Moses. We thank you for the law. For by it we see the reality of our sin, the frailty of our ways, and our need for a Savior. But we are so thankful, Lord, for Jesus. Because He's our Savior. He's our hope. Jesus alone is full of grace and truth. Help us, Lord, to be followers of Jesus, not of Moses. We pray it in His wonderful, grace-filled name. Amen.